Take your Bibles and open them up with me and turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 14, if you don't have your own Bible with you, there should be one in the back of the pew there for you. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, and we've been going through this account in the life of, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ for a, a couple of years now. We're sort of taking our time as we go through it. Somebody joked recently that I'll be 86 by the time we're done, but good news, we got nine chapters to go after this week. But we're just trying to take our time and going through it, really kind of drinking in deeply his words and his teaching, knowing that when the Bible speaks, that God speaks. And so it's with a seriousness and an earnestness that we come to the Word of God week after week and trying to understand what Jesus said, and then by the strength of his might, we try to leave here and take it and apply it to our lives. It was King David who wrote in Psalm 26, 2, which says, Examine me, O Lord, try me, test my mind and my heart. And so when you come here on a Sunday morning, this should be your goal and the cry from the depth of your soul as well. That as we come to this time together, that we bring ourselves under the light and the examination of the word of God, that it would not only bring you just information into our minds, but it, it would also go and take root deep within our hearts so that it might bring about transformation in our lives and bear fruit for Christ and his kingdom. And keep in mind, just as David said, examine me and try me and test my mind and my heart in that psalm, we need to keep in mind that this text is personal to each one of us as well. This text is one with which we would all probably admit at some level that we have a difficult time in applying and living out on a day-to-day basis. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a text that every single one of us here, including myself, need to hear and we need to obey because it is fundamental and foundational to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's an essential condition that you and I must meet in order to come all the way to truly following Jesus Christ. So let's look at our text together this morning, beginning in verse 25 of Luke 14. We're going to focus on uh, verses 33 on, and we're going to finish with verse 35. And then uh, next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at parables uh, all through 15 and into 16 from this point forward. But I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so with me, for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. God's inspired and inerrant word says this. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough 
with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while he is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you uh, as among people groups in this world, Lord, we have this great treasure in our hand that so many nations among this world do not even have the Bible written in their own language. It's to our great shame, Lord, that we neglect this so often. But Lord, this morning we pray as we study your word, as we hear your word proclaimed, that you would speak through a mere man and it would penetrate into our hearts so that it would transform our hearts to live for your glory. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you for this church and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the last few weeks, we've uh, looked at this passage. We began to look at the cost of discipleship. And the one thing that we can say as we read these words about discipleship is that this. It is serious business. The demands of Christ on our lives are not trivial, minor, or insignificant by any measure. And just like there were many people in this large crowd that were curious about Jesus and not totally committed to him... There are way too many people today even masquerading around as Christians in this world who are nominally committed. And they've never taken their discipleship seriously. And they are in a constant state of being on the fence with Jesus, so to speak. They're trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And our text before us this morning is Jesus saying, get off the fence. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, this is what I require of you, and these demands are not negotiable. Because the one who issues the call is the one who gets to set the terms. And Jesus makes his terms very clear to everyone here in this passage. These are not our terms in which we can haggle or or barter with, or maybe we can skirt around in order to try to follow Jesus Christ. But this is basics for every believer. This is entry-level discipleship. Because it's not going to be as if you're going to become this believer in Christ first, and then maybe someday you'll get serious and go deeper and become a disciple later. Or that you'll make Jesus your Savior in the beginning, and then at some point in your life, you're going to make him Lord. And believe me, there are people out there today that are advocating for this shallow, unbiblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian under the free grace movement. Or sometimes it's been called easy believism. And they say where you can get saved. You can make Jesus your Savior, but then some point later in your life, you will make him Lord. You dip your toe into the water, and then sometime later in your Christian life, you'll dive in and take a swim with him in the deep end. But you need to know, the Bible knows of no such person. 
And this text makes that abundantly clear. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to break radically away from every single thing that you love, every single thing that you've lived for, and everything that you cherish in this world, and you have to surrender it all to him. You are either all in for Jesus Christ or you are not. And if you are all in, there is a cost for you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen. What else is there in the Bible that talks about being a disciple of Jesus Christ? What else is there to being all in? Listen to John chapter 12 and verse 25. These are the words of Jesus. He says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. In John chapter 15 and verse 20, Jesus said, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In 9 uh, verse 62 of Luke, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 35, Jesus said, Do not think that I came here to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas, they told the disciples there in Derby, they said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul told his beloved Timothy, he said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The testimony of Scripture again and again and again, is completely contrary to what we hear day in and day out as being presented as the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Not only are we inundated with false gospels about success and prosperity, or false gospels of self-improvement and self-fulfillment, or false gospels of political gain, or false gospels of salvation by works. But every path to salvation is smoothed down, every barrier is removed, so that a hasty decision for Jesus Christ can be made, all the while the supposed convert has never, ever once considered the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus did completely the opposite. Because this is Jesus Christ on evangelism. This is what he said to those who first met him. Three times he says, if you don't do these things, you can't even be my disciple. And we saw that in the very beginning. Jesus called those who would be his disciples. That they must have a supreme love for him far above and beyond any of those that we have around us. 
He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus was saying is that there should be no human relationship that you have, and even for you grandparents out there, even when you look down at that precious grandchild of yours, and you see that beauty of that little child, that you should look at that and think, that pales in comparison to the love that I have for Christ Jesus. The amount of devotion, the amount of affection, the amount of love that you have, and the commitment that you have, pales in comparison to that of Jesus Christ. He even goes on to say, he says, you must hate your own life or you cannot be my disciple. Or to say it in a different way, you must love me more than you love you. You must now live for me instead of living for yourself. You must trust me and obey me and give me all of your allegiance and surrender to me. You must give up self-love. You must give up self-promotion. You must give up self-confidence. You must give up serving yourself. And you must wholly and unreservedly serve me. Then we saw the second condition to being a disciple of Jesus Christ in verse 27 when he said, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You must die to self and live to Christ. You must do it daily. It means you must mortify your sin. It means you must resist the devil and his temptations. It, must, it means that you must say no to ungodly desires. It means that you must control your tongue. It means that you must bring your bodies into subjection for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means that you take every thought captive and you bring it into obedience to Christ. And it means you reject anything and everything that will possibly get in your way in your service to God. To say it in another way, you die to the life that you once lived and the life that you once pursued. And now you live and you pursue Jesus Christ. You must carry your own cross or you cannot be his disciple. But then in verse 33, he gives us his third and final condition in this passage of what is required of you and I to be his disciple. He says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we must all immediately leave from here, go home, start selling everything on the internet, and start living a life of poverty? Is he saying that we can't have any savings account, that we need to just close our bank accounts and give all of our money away? I mean, it says very clearly in our text that we must give up all our possessions and we cannot be his disciples. And that word all means what it means. It means everything. So what is Jesus Christ saying here? What Jesus Christ is saying here is that your possessions probably possess you more than you possess them, and you need to give that up. Your love is probably greater for your stuff and for your money than it is for me, and that just cannot be if you want to be my disciple. Because our possessions, 
They are constantly lying to us. They're telling us that if you get rid of me, you're going to lose all of your hope. If you get rid of me, you are giving up all of your dreams. If you give me up, you are giving away all of your security. And not only that, but our possessions are constantly crying out to us day and night and trying to rob you of your thoughts and your time with God. They're constantly saying, you need to come to me. And you need to tend to me and you need to forget about going to sit down to pray. You need to give me attention and you need to forget about communing with God through his word. You need to, when you wake up in the morning, there's this chorus that is coming from all of your stuff, all of your possessions saying, you need to fix me. You need to paint me. You need to mow me. You need to clean me. You need to wash me. Spend time with me all crying out to you every single day. And as the Puritan Theophilus Gale put it, we accumulate so much stuff that the things of this world then start to have a tyrannic sovereignty over those of us who are consumed with our money and our possessions. But all of your possessions and all of your money and your constant desire for the accumulation of them is never, ever going to satisfy you. Solomon realized this when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. It's a waste. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you need to give all of that up. And that's the key word in this verse here. Give up. Apostaso is what it says in the Greek. To give up, it means to relinquish, to take leave of, to say goodbye to. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that you need to relinquish your possessions to him. And you need to rebel against the world that tells you day in and day out to get more and more and more for yourself. Jesus is not forbidding possessions And Jesus is not forbidding wealth. But what Jesus is forbidding here is wanting you to relinquish your grip on and putting your confidence in and placing all of your hopes and all of your security in your money and your possessions instead of putting all of that in him. And this is exactly the point that Jesus was trying to make in the rich young ruler in Luke 18. When the rich young ruler came to him, he said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler replied, all these things I have done and kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and he said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler let his money and his possessions have a tyrannic sovereignty over his life. 
The possessions and the wealth that he had wasn't the issue. But it was the inordinate affection for them. To the point that he wouldn't let them go to follow Jesus Christ. And that was his problem. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy six seventeen and 18. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world to get rid of everything and become a pauper. No. He said, do not let the rich in this present world become conceited and fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves Treasure of a good foundation in the future. And yet just before that, in verses 6 through 9 of 1 Timothy 6, Paul warned Timothy about the destructiveness of those who had an inordinate desire for wealth and possessions. He said, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmless desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so the issue is this. In relation to being a disciple of Jesus Christ and your money and your possessions, where does your heart lie? Jesus said in Matthew six twenty one, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where does your heart lie in relation to your possessions and your money this morning? Because one thing is certain, the movement of your money is a reflection of the movement of your heart. And wherever your money goes to, that's where your money ends up. That really is just a demonstration of where your heart already is. Do we honestly find ourselves looking to expand his kingdom? Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Relieve the poor. Give to our fellow believers in Christ so that no one is in need, just like they did in Acts 2.45. And that you would be willing to sell property and your possessions to that end. Do we really live like this? Do we find ourselves holding on to the things of this world so loosely like the disciples in Hebrews 10, verse 34, where it says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully... The seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. How can you have joy with the seizure of your property? It's because your heart is not in your property. It is in God. That's how you have it. Do we find ourselves holding on to the things of this world so loosely like those in Hebrews? What does the world see when they look at us? And we've got every single thing that they do. We're driving the nicest cars. We're living in nice houses. We've got the latest cell phones. But are they seeing us as a church that is willing to give up all for the sake of the gospel of Christ? Are they looking at a church that is only too willing to give enough that makes us look respectable, but not enough to make us uncomfortable? Do we really relinquish everything to Christ for the sake of our brethren? 
Are we really able to let go of everything for the sake of the lost? Are you willing to surrender everything to Christ for the sake of the poor? You would be willing to walk into the office of God and sit before him and take a pen and a blank piece of paper and slide it across that desk and say to God, whatever you want me to give up, whatever you want me to relinquish, whatever it is that I own, write it down because you gave your all for me. You gave me your precious son. And if you want me to give whatever it is, Lord, there's a blank piece of paper, write it down and I will give it for you. Because you gave me your beloved son. You gave your son and crucified him in my place. You name what you want me to give, Lord, and I'll give it to you. Would you be willing to do that this morning? Or have you put all of your hope and all of your confidence and all of your dreams and your possessions? Jesus says to you this morning, if that be the case, you cannot be my disciple. The missionary C.T. Studd was such a person willing to give up anything and everything to God. His father was extremely wealthy. He graduated from a prestigious Cambridge University. He was of the upper echelon of all of society in England. And when God got a hold of his life and called him to minister in the heart of Africa, he couldn't do so with this great big bank account. In England, because he said, I can't ever know if I'm trusting God or trusting my money. And so he ended up giving everything away, except for a little bit that he kept back. And he said, I want to take care of my wife. But then she, in turn, sees the seriousness in his devotions, and she finds out about that little nest egg that he keeps back. And she asks him, how is it that you can trust God, but I can't? And she tells him, give it all away. Don't keep it. Give it away. And so he took 100,000 pounds in English money that he kept back for her. And he ended up giving it to William Booth of the Salvation Army. Which is equivalent today, ladies and gentlemen, of $11 million. That's how serious he was. He was willing to give up all of his possessions in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus concludes in verse 34, Therefore, meaning conclusion, Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is either useless, either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So how does he get from everything he just said to them to talking about salt? What is he talking about here? How does salt lose its saltiness? Well, in the first century, there was salt from around the Dead Sea area that had such a, a mixture of other chemicals in it that it was possible that the, the sodium chloride would literally leach out of that larger mass if it wasn't processed correctly. And so you would end up something with something like gypsum. And if, if any of you have ever worked with drywall or sheetrock, that's the stuff you end up with. It's cakey, it's a powdery mess, and it's not worth anything. But it, it wouldn't be good for preserving or flavoring anything. In fact, 
It's not even worth throwing onto the ground or the manure pile because it's just going to lay there forever as a mess forever because it would never decompose. And so in relation to being a disciple of Jesus, he's saying that a temporary disciple is of absolutely no use to him. A disciple with one foot in the world and one foot in the church is of no value and use to him. A disciple who has not completely surrendered everything to him and given to him supreme loyalty and supreme allegiance and supreme devotion is absolutely worthless to him spiritually. If you're not following Jesus Christ in his way of discipleship and on his terms, you're about as good as salt that isn't salty. So what's this text about? What is Jesus saying to you and I this morning through his word? This text is very simply that Jesus Christ must have preeminence in your life. That's all. In everything that you can possibly entangle yourself in. Everything that your heart clings to. Everything that gives you significance in your life. Christ wants to be first in your life. Or he says you cannot be his disciple. He wants you to see him as more precious than your family. He wants you to see him as more important than yourself. He wants you to see him as more pleasurable and enjoyable than all of your stuff and the single greatest treasure in your life. Does that describe you this morning? Jesus says you must count the cost of being his disciple. But think about the value of everything you get in return. Have you put all of your trust and all of your confidence and all of your hope in your possessions? Or have you put them in Jesus Christ? Are you actually a servant of Jesus Christ, having surrendered everything to him, renouncing all of your loyalties, all of your affections, or are you a servant of the world and the powers of darkness? You're either one or the other. Are you truly someone who is homesick for heaven, or are you so busy and so caught up in this present age that all you think about is the next biggest thing you're involved in or the next biggest thing you're going to get? Or are you consumed with knowing and loving and serving Jesus Christ? Do you look up to Christ and you see him high and lifted up and beautiful and worthy and treasured? Do you see Jesus Christ like that this morning? There is no middle ground to loving and serving and sacrificing to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Will you this morning begin to rest your soul on these precious promises? Will you believe God? Will you trust him and what he says to you and begin to relinquish your grip on all of these things in this world that entangle you in your heart and your mind? Will you trust God that he has better for you through his promises? Let's pray. Father, we all readily confess to you that 
we cling so tightly to the things of this world. We find our security in so many other things other than Jesus Christ. We find that our, our lives through the work, our, our lives through the week, are not consumed with thoughts of you and longing to spend time with you, but the things of this world easily entangle us and draw us away from you. God, change our heart in this. Let us be known as a church who is willing to give anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. For your glory and for your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.